for me, it has always kind of act as a very like gentle trigger word, right? Where it's like, well, belong where and to whom and to what and who says, right? It's like that there's a lot of baggage around the word for, for someone like myself, but like for a lot of people who have spent their lives trying to figure out where on earth they belong. Welcome to Let's Get Proximate, the podcast that explores the stories, experiences, and challenges of others so we can learn to innovate, create, and collaborate with lived experiences different from our own. Join hosts Alex Allen and Callie McKee as they explore the power and proximity, leveraging the value of meaningful interactions and insights to disrupt false narratives and foster understanding that leads to real and lasting transformation. Let's dive into the latest episode and learn more about creating an inclusive future for all. This episode is brought to you by Cisco, an industry leader in technology innovations and solutions. With networking, security, collaboration, cloud management, and more, Cisco helps to securely connect industries and communities, creating the bridge to possible. Find out more at www.cisco.com. Welcome to the Let's Get Proximate podcast. I'm so excited to be here today. My name is Callie McKee. I am one of the co-hosts of the Let's Get Proximate podcast. My Pronouns are she and her. I'm a middle-aged white woman. I've got brown hair with some gray streaks kind of playing in there somewhere. I'm wearing a blazer with some galaxy stars on them today. And I've got a blue background with some awesome Lego sets, which my guest also has in her background today as well. We'll talk more about those. I'm usually joined by my other co-host, Alex Allen. And Alex is off today and I am doing this podcast solo. I could not be more excited for our conversation today, but first, let me talk a little bit about our podcast. So what we've got with the Lex Get Proximate podcast is what we're really aiming to do is just get proximate to each other. This podcast is supported by our partners, big ups to our partners in customer and partner experience engineering. And what we do with these podcasts is just going to talk about how do we approach conversations around difference? So that's difference in our identities and our backgrounds, our experiences. We're going to deep dive into how those identities, how those experiences shape who we are, how we show up, how we see the world. And in the meantime, we're going to meet a lot of really great people and learn about them and hopefully introduce Cisco and our guests, our listeners to just different perspectives on life. So before we introduce our special guest, you know, we'd like to talk a little bit about proximity and what's going on in the world of proximity this week. As usual, proximity has been very busy this week. And one of the things I'm really excited about is Alex and I are actually attending Cisco Live, which is our partner summit. And we're going to talk to leaders about skills to build proximity. Here's a great thing we know about proximity team is that when we develop skills for proximity, listening to each other, learning about each other, doing that work of widening our lenses and starting to understand how other people see and experience the world. Those are skills that are essential for helping us build customer relationships, for helping us build trust amongst our teams. And if we can get it right between each other, friends, we can get it right with our teams, we can get it right with our customers, and we can get it right with our business. So each time we practice these skills, these are skills for life, y'all. This, <laughs> these aren't just skills that we only use one time during a conversation. These are skills that help us navigate the world better, to be more empathetic, to be more engaged with the world around us, and to start creating and innovating and solving these big problems we have in the world from perspectives that are different from our own. And being able to solve these problems 
together with the communities that they impact the most instead of just for those communities is essential work that is work that not only we're doing at Cisco, but we're happy this week. We're going to go and share that with our partners and we're going to start to talk about how these skills really translate into the bigger world. So that's what I'm geeked out about today in proximity. I'm going to go, we're going to go to Vegas. We're going to get proximate in Vegas with some folks. We're going to meet some folks from different companies and our different partners and learn about how this looks in the big world. So I'm super geeked about that. If you're listening to this podcast, you can check that out later. It's a great session getting proximate. We're also launching some of our proximity marketing at Cisco Live. So you're going to see some videos. You're going to see some cool testimonials. Super excited. So proximity just feels like it's rolling. We're doing some great stuff. We're thinking about what proximity looks like in our next fiscal quarter here at Cisco. And, you know, just continuing to build our skills around this. What I love about proximity is it gives us the ability just to keep working at it, right? We know these conversations are imperfect. We know that they take practice. We know that sometimes we mess them up. Sometimes we do really well. And it's just a continuous process of learning to get proximate to each other and learning what that means. All right. So my excitement about Cisco Live, y'all, is secondary only to my excitement about y'all meeting my friend, Rachel. So I'm going to introduce <laughs> Rachel here from Cisco. No relation. Cisco spelled S-I-S-C-O. Uh, is a Korean adoptee based out of Michigan. She currently serves as a senior employment counsel for Cisco and is deeply committed to ensuring all people are safe and available to come to work to achieve beyond what they believe is already defined. Y'all, this was Rachel's bio that she sent me. Can I just like, this is why I love Rachel. This is Rachel's why I love you. Safe, are able and safe to come to work and achieve beyond what they already believe is defined. Rachel, you deal in possibilities, my friends. I will tell you all that Rachel and I go way back. Rachel and I have known each other for pre-Cisco, pre-Duo, which we both came over in the Duo acquisition. Rachel and I worked together at the University of Michigan, Rachel, I think 20 years ago, doing some really groovy educational theater stuff. Rachel like went out on a limb and I was like, we think we should sing a song about belonging. And she was like, let's do it. So y'all, super excited. Rachel, could you say hello to our listeners and introduce yourself with your pronouns and a bit of an audio description for us? Oh, gosh, Kelly, I'm so moved by your opening. It was one of the best I've ever heard. So bravo, folks. So very blessed to be here. My name is Rachel. Pronouns are she, her. And for visuals, I am an Asian female, black hair, sort of maroon glasses with a matching scarf on. And I have an undercut and I am surrounded also by Legos because why not? Mostly Tolkien themed Legos though. So I have Tolkien behind me and I have Tower of Orthanc and I have a ton of Zelda stuff over here. So that is my vibe. And when you said professional, I was like, well, this is what you get. So <laughs> that's me. Listen, I appreciate that. And we'll dive into the, I think the professional relevancy of Lego is a whole other podcast that we could absolutely have. But you can tell as we get proximate, the things we share, Lego, Rachel is much more fantasy themed. And I've gone with like the botanical, I've got a lot of flowers. I've got a lot of animal Lego behind me. So this is like a whole other yeah, it's all right. It's good. It's how we go. It's good. It's good. I would kill flowers. So like the Lego flowers are all I could really manage anyway. So this is true. And Rachel, tell us a little bit about, I mean, I know that those Lego sets, because we've had this conversation that, you know, sometimes you build them, but sometimes they are built for others, by others for you. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of who makes up that little Lego building community for you? 
Yes. Oh, my three loves. So my husband, my partner, his name is Daniel. We have been besties for over 20 years, but, you know, married for 16 this year. It sounds crazy to say that, but it's true. He, my son, Teddy, my daughter, Rosie, they're my whole world. And they're the ones who built all of it behind me. I wish I could say that I was the cool one who built it, but I, I don't have the patience for it. So I wanted the things and they were so kind as to know who I am and buy them and put them together for me and surprise me. And so together they built everything and they play with it. And it is a wonderful activity for them anyway, but it's such a gift for me to receive just such, you know, beautiful, what I consider pieces of art, but the thought that went behind it to know what I would love is amazing. So yeah, that's them. I love that, Rachel. And usually in this point of the podcast, I would ask guests if they're ready to get proximate. I think we just started to get proximate, but are you ready to continue to get proximate, Rachel? Let's get proximate. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful. So, you know, one of the things I love when we were talking is, and I asked you about the Lego behind you, because I feel like you wear who you are kind of very out in the open. We talk about your family. I mean, just in your introduction, I made a point of saying you sent that to me because I think it was important that you chose to really focus on being a Korean adoptee as part of that really core part of your introduction. So I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about that, Rachel. Talk a little bit about your upbringing, you know, kind of some of those early influences and some of those things that you noticed growing up that really influenced how you show up in the world today. Let's do that. Yeah. So... Thank you for that pitch. So I grew up in a very tiny little town in the middle of Michigan, a place that most folks probably won't recognize, but is Williamson, Michigan, for those of you who know. And it's a wonderful place to grow up. It was safe. It was comforting. It had all the basics that you need, right, to to have a very safe and comfortable life. My folks are two very lovely wonderful people who raised me in Michigan. One of them actually grew up in that same town and the other grew up in New Jersey and grew up there. But I was the adopted baby. You know, it took them a long time to make a family. And so they decided to make a family the way that they knew how. And so they brought me into their life. I was raised from three months old in that town and very quickly became very aware of the fact that I was the only Asian person within miles, right? And so as an adoptee, you know, I consider myself very lucky in many ways where I had a lot of opportunities that I may not have otherwise had. But growing up as the only adoptee in the environment that I knew of until much closer to high school, the only Asian person in my family, the only Asian person that I had ever known, it was definitely difficult. You know, I consider myself very much a foreigner in my own family in that regard, where as much as my parents loved me and wanted to share with me everything they knew about what it was like to grow up and the difficulties that they faced. In the end, they're also white folks, right? You know, they identify as white. And my mother's Jewish. She had to deal with a lot of discrimination that she grew up with where she was. But it's hard to compare the experiences of someone growing up racially dominant. And in my situation, very much not. And so they were loving, but wholly unprepared to have a really authentic conversation about what it meant to be a person of color. And so I had to navigate that and come up with what it meant to be Asian by myself through magazines and watching TV and seeing what's her name, men on Barney and Friends, you know, like little things like that, like pulling little snippets of culture from 
things that were kind of shown to me and not really ever having a chance to learn it from someone in particular. So that's the background of how it started. (laughs) That's so interesting. The Barney and me is so interesting. So that was your touch point, seeing someone who looked like you at a young age and then trying to kind of construct an identity around that. I heard you say that your parents were not wholly prepared to deal with that. Do you remember conversations and how young were you about, did they talk to you about your adoption? Did they talk about racial differences? What was kind of that early, those early messages from them as I know there were kind people who were trying their best. What are some of those kind of messages you remember those conversations? They were kind people trying their best. They're still kind people trying their best, right? I love them to death. Yeah. It was never a secret that I was adopted, right? I don't know how they would have got around that and tried to pretend, but you know, and I don't think there was ever an, a, a desire to say, oh no, don't talk about that, right? They were very open about what it meant to be adopted and saying, you know, you were born from someone else and you are our child, right? It's like, there's never a question of you're someone else's child, right? I was very much their daughter. But in terms of what that meant and how, and explaining why I couldn't just say I'm their daughter without having to explain it was challenging. Even with our own family, you know, extended family, a lot of folks had a lot of questions like why an Asian girl? Like, why not just adopt someone who looks like, like lots of questions around the racial piece and feeling like I needed to explain why, like it was a bad thing. Right. And so, you know, my folks were very thoughtful about the fact that it was difficult, but I don't know that they really understood how painful it was for me as a young person, not really feeling like I fit in any way. Like Even when I was standing with them, the question I would get a lot is, oh, she a foreign exchange student or the daughter of a foreign exchange student? Like, why is this Asian person with this giant white family, right? And it's fine. I get it. And in that environment, probably was curious to a lot of folks. But it wasn't a curiosity that was ever expressed in words. It was more just through stares and through sort of through questions at school saying like, well, where are your real parents? Like, why are you with them? And never really sort of grokking that. And I got tired very quickly of trying to explain that saying like, no, these are my parents. This is my sister. We're not just buddies. I'm not just like hanging out at her house, you know, and my folks were very quick to kind of downplay that. I think for them, one, it was hard for them. Like, I I don't know that they ever really thought through how to have those conversations. So a lot of it would be like, oh, they're just ignorant. Don't worry about it. And so it became a non-issue. And so it became something that I felt a little uncomfortable bringing up because, you know, they would react so dismissive of it, saying like, yeah, like that they don't know anything. Don't listen to them. But if that's all you hear, hard to ignore it. Right. And it kind of felt a little dismissive of the experience. Yes. So Rachel, I'm going to go deep with you a little bit because I think you, I think you raised some good points when we talk about this dynamics between how we talk about race in general, right? And this is, I'm going to speak to my white allies for a minute. And I want you to think when we talk about things like privilege, and that could be very hard for us to wrap around. I think one of those things we talked about is things that you don't naturally have to think about, things that were just kind of automatic. I never had to think about when I was with my parents, having a conversation about why I was there, Rachel, right? (laughs) I didn't have to have a conversation. I didn't have to convince people that these were my parents. I didn't have to say like why I was in the family. Like that piece of that emotional tax on such a young person too, and not really having that language, right? I mean, that's very advanced. I would say even now, right? There would be a lot of adults that would struggle with how would we talk about that in a way that was constructive. And then to be a child in that space, I think is really interesting to think about that privilege piece is not just, you know, somebody going off and having all these advantages. (laughs) It's also what we don't have to explain. 
what we don't have to think about, what we don't have to justify our place in a place, right? No one's asking me why I'm with somebody or why I'm in a place. So I think that that's such a key thing for folks to listen. And the other thing you talked about is this kind of dismissiveness of like, don't worry about it. And I think that's really common for folks too, who are trying to be allies that we kind of can get in this trap of being like, oh, it's just people. Don't worry about it. We're all great. We're all the same. We're all great. And what we don't really realize is that that dismissiveness, even well-intended dismissiveness, where we think we're kind of just putting off, oh, those are bad people, whatever, that doesn't take away the stuff for you, right? Like, so your parents saying, hey, these people are ignorant. They don't know. You're still holding that hurt, that trauma, that pain, that confusion. I mean, maybe it wasn't even that deep at that young, but that kind of like, huh. And that doesn't go away because someone else says, don't worry about it, right? I'm just wondering like how, and maybe you remember, Rachel, maybe you don't remember, but like, what did you do with that? I've got this visual here for those of you who are listening, but I've got this visual here. I've just got my hands kind of full of this invisible thing. What did you do with that stuff, Rachel? Like, where did you put that? And how did you kind of navigate that on your own as such a young person? Yeah, it's interesting because what kind of to the point that you were saying, it's not just downplaying, it's sort of saying, oh, it's either don't worry about it or thank goodness you don't have it worse, right? Or like sort of this idea that like racism doesn't apply to you, Rachel. So don't worry about it. It's like, wait, first, what? And then two, it does. And three, comparing it to other scenarios is even more complicating as well, right? Where it's like, my husband likes to say, you know, if you lost a foot and your friend comes to you and lost a leg, you still lost a foot, right? <laughs> it's like, you, you still hurts. You're still in a, in a scenario where, you are experiencing trauma and pain and it shouldn't undermine what you are experiencing just because someone else is having a terrible experience as well. Right. And so anyway, you know, that it's, so I loved that your call out there, but what I did with what was handed to me, right. I mean, I think the way that it manifested was one in a very positive way and one in a a difficult way that I'm still managing. Right. So in the positive way, it really forced me to think how I wanted to be viewed because my, realization at a very young age, they're like three, four, five, was that people noticed that I didn't fit in. And so I wanted to do everything I could to make it my choice that people were looking at me, right? They're looking at me because I'm the smartest in the class, or I am funny, or, you know, I dress really well and making it more about my brain and less about the fact that very obviously I'm the only Asian in this classroom. (laughs) So I applied myself to my studies, right? And I was an all A student all the way through law school. And I was president of everything, you know, anything that I could be in charge of, I wanted to be so that I could show my value and make it just a little bit less likely that they were going to ask why I was here, right? Can confirm Rachel was a star student. Can confirm Rachel was a star student. I witnessed it with my own eyes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I didn't want to give anyone an inch to question why I was here. Right. So I said, okay, fine. I will knock it out of the park. Right. And so from that perspective, it was good. Right. You know, academically fantastic. It's led me to a really good place career-wise, mentally, health-wise. I think it resulted in a constant feeling of, I don't belong here. Nobody wants me here. I shouldn't be here in the first place. So I really should be making myself smaller make myself more agreeable, don't give people a reason to want me to be gone, right? Because I'm only here by leave of someone else, right? I have zero agency in this situation. I'm only here because someone else is letting me be here. And so that mentality has led me to 
you know, make choices in my career that if I had had other opportunities and like other experiences, I probably wouldn't have just because I would not have been so afraid to be afraid that someone is going to let me go and ultimately say, yeah, we don't need you anymore. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Wow, Rachel. I think that's such a holding both those things at the same time, right? So recognizing that some of the work, you know, I think we've heard that from a lot of folks who've grown up feeling othered or who have been othered (laughs) or who grew up as children of immigrants. We've heard this from a lot, like this desire to really just go above and beyond and really kind of double down on some of those things. And I want to hear it too. When we talk about privilege, you know, when we talk about all these things, one of the things that we think we miss and that your story just really helps bring to light so well is that it's the ability to take risks, right? It's the ability to be edgy. It's the ability to be like, I'm going to think out the boxy. I'm going to try something that maybe everybody won't like. That's a very privileged thing. So for me to sit in a room and say, hey, listen, half the people here might not like this, but let me throw out a crazy idea or let me throw out an idea that's just so, that's a privilege. And what I hear you saying is that you really tried to not stick out in that way. You tried to be exceptional, but you really weren't looking for that. Is that a fair assessment, first of all? And how do you think that kind of impacted your ability kind of moving forward? Obviously, you're very successful. You had a great career, were a great student. But talk to me about that when you're the only or when you're the other and you're trying to make yourself smaller to just kind of get through. How does that impact you? It impacts you in almost everything you do, right? And I would certainly say that as a lawyer, as a woman, as just a worker, as a person, you know, I always tend to lean in the very risk averse approach, right? I Mm. always want to understand the full circumstances and what I could win, what I could lose before I move. And I can't always get that, right? And so I have had to learn and to train myself to be much more comfortable in that space. But because of this sort of very baseline underlying fear of, oh, People don't like me anyway, or people might not want me here anyway, or I am only lucky to be here. I don't want to risk not being here anymore after everything that I've gone through, right? So whether it's, do we go on a trip, you know, like, and maybe risk taking PTO and maybe not being there for someone, right? Or if it's, do we take a risk in this particular case, right? Because it, you know, we could do this or could do that. And it's a big choice and I'm comfortable making those choices on behalf of a client, but I want to make sure that everyone knows what the options are and why I did what I did so no one can come back and say like, well, bad choice and goodbye, right? It's So it influences everything from the top down, right? You know, even what do I eat today, right? Like, do I take the risk of something really, something new and different and like risk food point? It's like, that might sound silly, but it does play in my mind, you know, whether or not I'm, I never have a day where I'm not thinking about, oh, what are the options, right? And some are more prominent than others. And in school, right, it was a question of where do I go to school and where am I going to make the right choices to have a career and to have something that my folks will be proud of and that folks will see me as, quote unquote, important, you know, enough to listen to me, right, to, again, have some apparent authority in a situation where I've never inherently felt like I had authority. I'm saying woof, y'all, because it's so, Rachel, it's so poignant to think about your career choice, your trajectory and all these things. And I know you love what you do and you're very good at what you do, y'all, formidable. You want Rachel on your side. Cisco's lucky to have you. And thinking about kind of how that identity piece really played into that decision to be somewhere where 
you literally, legally, literally people have to listen to you. <laughs> I mean, but literally, they don't always, yeah, they don't have yeah. to, but they, <laughs> ideally they should. Right. And thank you for what you said. I mean, I do feel like, cause I care, right. I want to get it right. And I do care about the experience of folks. I tell my leader that, you know, I am, my empathy dial is like permanently dial up to like an 11 on a scale of one to 10. I can't turn it off. Right. And so if I missed up for someone, I take it very personally and I want to get it right because I know what it feels like to get it wrong. Right. And so, so yeah, thank you for saying that, for seeing me like that. Yeah. Well, I love thinking about your empathy dial to being turned up. And as a result, because I think it could have easily gone the other way, right? I think it could have been, you think about these experiences and having to explain where you're in a place and you're you know, your professionalism and that whole imposter syndrome thing. And it could have easily gone away to be embittered. It could have gone away to like shut down. And the fact that you chose to remain open in that space and actually use that as a statement. So let me ask you, we talked about kind of little Rachel dealing with these things. We've talked about kind of grown Rachel. Let's talk about that in-between place. Let's talk about as you started to get more in touch with your identity, how did you do that? How did you connect with, you know, the Koreanness, so to speak, of your identity? How did you connect with the adoptee part of your identity and any other part as well that we haven't talked about? What was that process for you? And how did you grow to find connection with that? It's been like a 40-year process, Kelly. I mean, yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I'll be honest, right? (laughs) And all of it is like the best metaphor I can say is like, it's very much like a pendulum for me, right? So I went from not knowing anything about it at all, not caring a single thing about being Asian because I didn't want people to notice to only wanting to be seen as Asian. Like once I got into college, right. I went to the university of Michigan, loved it there, go blue. And also found it very challenging to fit into those environments where there were these well-established AAPI organizations. So like there were no Korean adoptee associations, but there was the Korean student association. There was the international student association, amazing groups where I just felt another level of fish out of water where I don't have Asian parents and I don't have these experiences. I don't speak another language, but I really wanted to fit in there because I thought that's where I belonged, right? Because all of the environment that I grew up in before kind of assumed that that's where I belonged, right? And so in my very young mind was like, okay, like I'll try it. Let's see how it works and try it on for size didn't really work for me again. And, you know, in the environment where I started to meet other Korean adoptees, I had the pleasure of going to one Korean adoptee camp when I was very little and met some people through there who we all kind of grew up together. And, you know, there are conferences, there are lots of parents who want their kids to meet other people. And so I was grateful to my folks for introducing me to those people. And through those networks, started to meet more people with similar experiences. But Again, it was very much sort of a within and without, like where do I fit in this community versus this community? And so, yeah, swinging very hard in one direction and swinging very hard in another direction until I kind of started to slow down and find myself in this little place where I'm like, I don't know. So my name is Rachel Hidim Sisko. Hidim is my Korean name. That is the name that was given to me when I was born. I don't know if that's actually a name that's related to my birth mother, but it is a name that was given to me when, you know, when I was born. And my parents actually changed it to Rachel Elizabeth Jones, which was my name all the way up until like mid-20s, which for me just felt a little odd, right? I mean, it's a beautiful name and I'm very grateful that I had it, but it really 
kind of wiped away all of the Koreanness of me. And my, I remember my folks telling me, you know, that was intentional because they, again, wanted to make sure everyone knew that I was theirs. Fine. What it did sort of psychologically was kind of erase some piece of me that felt very important. So around late college, I actually made the decision to, and my dad helped me, which was amazing, go through the name change process and reclaim my Korean name. And so I became Rachel Him Shin. And that felt much better. Like, it's hard to explain, but it's like, you know, that the naming piece is so important in, in many different identities. But for me, that was really important to kind of take back that piece and own where I came from, right? And with all the complications that come with that. So going through that process and then actually getting a chance to go to Korea one time and, you know, seeing what the country was like and just kind of getting a sense of other parts of me that I hadn't explored was really a great opportunity to kind of settle myself and say, okay, I can be a little bit of everything because I know that I'm not all this and I'm not all that. I just, I kind of have to be a little bit more fluid with my approach. There's just no good definition for, for my background. Oh, I love that story about your name, Rachel, because we talk about proximity a lot. And folks say that, you know, guys, so hard to start a conversation with somebody and get proximate with somebody you don't know. And, you know, one of the suggestions we always make is talk about names, because as you just talked about, names are so, oh, they're so nuanced. They're so complex. And we often don't spend a lot of time thinking about them sometimes, but the names are so important. I want to ask you about, and thank you for pronouncing it correctly, Hiram. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Again, I don't speak Korean either, so it could be wrong, but that's how I pronounce it. Do you know any background? I know you said it somehow was associated with you in your Korean birth. We don't know exactly how. Do you have any other, have you discovered anything else about that name or why you chose it? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking. So it took me a long time and a lot of work with the adoption agency in Korea to discover any information about the reason for the name. And when I was adopted, they provided a lot of paperwork that I still have. I keep very close to me because it's just little like tokens of, you know, of my past. And it, it did say that the name that my, it didn't actually say my birth mother's name, but it did say that I was named possibly after a family member or after maybe even the doctor. I don't know, because they had a very similar name too. And so in Korea, there's actually, you know, many laws that protect the privacy of, of birth mothers, understandably so, and rightfully so, in my opinion, but in a way that makes it very difficult for folks like myself to get information, any health history or anything like that. And so I was in a process of maybe 20 years of trying to just get any information out of that agency to see, you know, just tell me a name, tell me anything, you know? And so at some point, an agent did reach out to me and said, okay, look, we don't do this often. And in fact, we rarely do this, but we only do it for very certain circumstances. One where, you know, the birth mother maybe has passed away or where the name is so generic, there's no likelihood of being able to find the person. And that was the situation where that applied to me the best. So the name of my birth mother is Shin Hisuk. And so you can see kind of like the Hisuk Hirim connection there. They think it's probably a fake name, which I also think is very likely just because it's such a common name. It would be like Rachel Jones, <laughs> you know, I mean, right in Korea, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, in Korea, right? And so like lots of folks named Hesuk, and it's a beautiful name. And it's a name that for me just felt just a little bit more real. And even if it comes out of a fake identity, 
it's more than what I had, you know? <laughs> so before I came from the ether and now I came from a person, right? Like in my mind, that's kind of what solidified it for me. So I'm not just some sort of phenomena that just showed up, right? It's like there is right. a reason. For There's a connection. Like, yes. So I decided, you know, that for me was so important to just kind of tie myself to something that felt very grounding and that felt very real, right? And even if I don't know where it's from, it's something that I can take and give some definition to. So that's why the name became very important. And I've been asked a lot if I'm going to provide, you know, Korean names for my children. And we decided not to just because for me, the Korean part is about me more than them, right? They do have Koreanness about them, but that wasn't part of my growth and my it wasn't part of my life for so long that it just felt like it would be reaching a little bit too far to try to suddenly come up with, you know, another tie for them that it might not mean anything to them in the long run. So, yeah, it's such an important discussion, too, about identity is very personal. And part of the reason we have to get proximate and we can't just assume this is what it means to be Korean. This is what it means to be a Korean adoptee. This is what it means is that there's so many nuances and complications there. And it's really personal. It's really personal how you connect to it. I think it's really interesting talking about now I have a name, if it's a real name or if it's not a real name, it doesn't matter, but it gives me a sense of grounding and then being really thoughtful about how do we want to take that over. So I want to ask you about something that we've talked about before, and it kind of relates to this, what you talked about being both inside and outside. So not feeling like, you know, you really were othered growing up, being the only Asian person you saw in your family and kind of having to justify that. And then being like, oh, well, cool, problem solved. Here's all the Koreans. And then feeling like, oh, wait, that doesn't really speak to my experience either, right? Like that's different. And so still feeling kind of outside and othering. As we start to talk about diversity inclusion in the corporate sense or in in these large sense, you know, belonging is one word that's getting brought in a lot to talk about as we talk about that. And I think yours is such a good example of why that's such a complicated concept. And kind of as you've worked, I know you've been, really involved with diversity inclusion at Cisco. You've been involved throughout your whole growing up in your career when you were in law school. Talk to me about that word belonging. Talk to me about, you know, when it fits, when it doesn't fit, and the kind of the complications of that word. For, I think, Rachel, a lot of folks, a lot of folks, as we start talking about wrapping this into our strategy, so to speak, in DNI. Yeah. No, thank you for that. I mean, belonging is in its most genuine form, it sounds like a good idea, right? And I think it's a word that's very popular because who doesn't want to belong to something, right? Like, are we always kind of looking for something to belong to? But for me, it has always kind of act as a very like gentle trigger word, right? Where it's like, well, belong where and to whom and to what and who says, right? It's like that there's a lot of baggage around the word for someone like myself, but like for a lot of people who have spent their lives trying to figure out where on earth they belong. And if it's okay for them to say, I belong here versus someone else telling them if they can. Right. And so, you know, it's good for business in many ways, right? It's people feeling like they belong to something, that they own something, that they're a part of something. Of course, it's going to make folks more productive. It's going to make folks more engaged and it makes them vested in the success of the business. So it makes perfect sense to make that part of your corporate initiative. Right. But if you're not thinking about it, about how you know, from an empathetic perspective, not everyone is going to be sold on the idea that belonging to something is good, right? You and I have talked about how in the legal field, for example, belonging isn't always free, right? It's not something that just happens, right? It's for someone who feels that they've had to justify why they are here in the first place. 
might make choices about belonging to whether it's a firm or a company or you know a bigger group in order to just to fit in right so i've said this before right like folks in a more traditional field might feel that if you stick out too much or if you complain about treatment where that you feel is unfair or if try to advocate for yourself and get a salary that you feel like is better you know than what it is that they're willing to offer you you might get shut down and they might say you know what you're too much you are high maintenance you're just way too much for us thank you no thank you right and you're never really going to know if that's because of who you are or if because of what you're saying and so it's not free in that regard right it's not free to say like belongings for everybody right it isn't always and in a situation where you know companies want to use it for their corporate initiatives i think you really need to give some teeth to it right and give some clear definition around it right cuz you know the metaphor is the door is held open for everyone right but in your metaphor there's still a door which means someone's still holding it open there's someone who's still watching the door and you know it's a door right it's like that doesn't mean that it's accessible for everybody right so it's flawed in its approach right and it's i think there's a lot of genuine desire to do good and to approach it in a way where everyone can feel like they have a place to hold on to but unless you're thinking about it from a corporate setting it's just kind of a word right and to me you know belonging is it's feeling like regardless of whether i'm here or elsewhere i'm safe right i'm i'm okay to exist where i am right if we're going to go like full corporate right it's about making sure that the process of transitions right so for employees who have to leave the company for whatever reason knowing that they can do it in a safe and smooth way right you know when belonging no longer applies to them at this company how are we treating them on that path right or in a situation where you know we as a company are saying belonging but are we defining it for our leaders so that they understand what it means right like are we making sure that like our c suite is like very defined and what belonging means within their organization right it can't just be everyone belongs at a company it's this is how i commit to belonging i don't know what work is happening there right it's hard to have a conversation about belonging without the conversation about privilege too right where like it's a privilege to be able to say you belong <laughs> right right it's like that there's a privilege to feeling belonging in the first place and if, if we don't talk about privilege we can't really talk about why belonging matters right so woo say it for the people in the back Yes, just saying, right? It's just complicated, right? And so on the one hand, it's a wonderful sentiment, but it can be hollow if it's not honest. Yes, Rachel, yes. I mean, you got me all excited because I just think you just hit upon something so core. And we can talk about this with the word inclusion as well is if belonging is still from one perspective and that perspective is still from folks who are sitting in the majority. That's not a bad thing. Again, y'all, I'm talking to my white allies. Not a bad thing if you are sitting in privilege because you are white. But what it means is that we can't then define belonging by what I think belonging looks like, right? So if you still can't get it, that door analogy is great. It's like you still have to get there. There's still a door. And then what the heck happens when I go through the door and get in your house, right? And we talk about this with leaders a lot. Like it's not enough to get a bunch of diverse people on your front porch and say, come to my party. If I go in your party and there's no chairs, there's no people who look like me on the walls, there's no food that I can eat, you know, I'm not sticking around. I don't belong there. 
because your definition of what that looks like. So, so that definition of belonging and relating that to this main narrative, right? Is like, what does that look and sound like? It can't just be to belong, Rachel, you come and do everything I do, right? You come and dress the way you just beef up on your snappy blazers and you come to work every day wearing a blazer and a t-shirt and that's belonging. Well, that's my belonging, right? And so I think you make such a good point about the need to get really specific about what that looks and sounds like, what inclusive behaviors are really connected to belonging, what makes people feel like they belong. So let me ask you, since we're getting proximate, Rachel, in times when you have felt that you belonged, that you were included, what are some of the things that folks did or teams did or a culture did that made you feel that way? And what are some of the ways that when you were lacking that, what are some of the actions that folks, how did that look and sound when it didn't work as well? Ooh, yeah, that's those are great because it's hard to nail down a specific time when I felt I belong here for sure, right? But I mean, I th- think the closest that I felt to it is, you know, in my current role where I have a team and I have a leader who d- really genuinely cares about people's well-being, right? It's not just about the work, right? It's about us too, right? Us being taken care of and supporting us and saying, what can I do? And when I really haven't felt it was life in a law firm environment, right? Where it's very much a do this work. I don't care what you have going on. I don't care, you know, what you might be dealing with privately. Tough. It's like, this is how we all do it. Like we all do it, get over it, move on. Right. And so I think most folks in that environment would say, ah, no, thank you if you can, right? It's like some folks can't say no to that, right? And that's, I was very lucky to have the choice to be able to step away from that eventually. But where I feel most belonging is when I get a chance to kind of like in this environment, honestly, like being able to talk to you about this and being enabled to talk about diversity initiatives within our company. I was very lucky to be chosen for a fellowship on this topic. And so I, I definitely felt Like I belonged there because I felt seen by my senior leaders who I don't get to interact with very much, but the opportunity to say, you know, we see something in you and we want you to have this opportunity to work with it and run with it. I mean, that's wonderful. Just, and it's not just because of how I look, I had to ask for it too, but I mean, making it a safe space for people to ask for things and to say what, you know, how they're feeling, right? I think we heard this recently on a different program where you know, if your team is very quiet and just kind of tends to agree with you on everything, I wouldn't necessarily look at that as a leader as saying, oh, I'm such a good leader. I would say, oh, wait, what? Like discourse is healthy. Discourse is important. And so if you're in a team that's silent or not arguing, I mean, think about whether or not you're really creating an environment where people feel safe to talk, right? And yeah, and being able to speak your truth without feeling like, oh, I'm probably going to get fired for this because I'm unhappy or I'm this way, Right. I think recognizing as a leader, you know, I'm not a people leader here in my current role, but I have been a people leader before and recognizing your limits too and saying and acknowledging to everyone saying, I know I'm not doing enough and I'm trying and I want to know what enough looks like to you. Like help me understand what that means. And also accepting the fact that none of us are ever really doing enough, right? It's like, we're all doing a lot. And I think we all should be proud of the work that we're doing, but you know, it's not enough to just do the right thing when something's brought to you, right? I mean, there's a lot of leaders who are really well-intentioned and who want to do the right thing and who do choose the right thing when it's brought to them. But are they really seeking out those voices that are missing? Are they being intentional by, you know, planning what the next few months look like for their workforce, right? I mean, 
it's hard work. No one said it was fun. <laughs> no one said it was easy, right? And sometimes it's not fun, right? Like sometimes it's actually very daunting and sad and challenging and you can get beat down by how much work there is still left to do, even if you kind of get over that hump, right? But it's kind of acknowledging that it's a life's work and that it'll probably still be here when you are not, right? But that if you're passing it on a little bit better, that's helping, right? I don't love the idea of not finishing a task, right? So the idea of this work still happening, still being here when I'm gone, you know, for my kids to bear is overwhelming sometimes. But I also don't let that stop me from, you know, to make things better for them and for myself. I feel like I owe it to myself to do this, right? Because little Rachel would have wanted me to, you know. Ah, say that again, Rachel, because it was so good. And I interrupted the audio on that and with a, ah, because it was so like, it pained my heart. So say that again about little Rachel, because I think it was so good. Little Rachel would have wanted me to try harder, right? I mean, she would have loved to have someone to look up to and say, oh, you can do this, you know, and you don't need to see someone else do something to make change, right? It's like, it's nice. It's a very nice to have someone else doing something for you and showing you how to do it, right? But I like to think that I'm a good example of how you don't have to have someone doing it for you first. You know, you can kind of figure it out. It was really hard work and I'm better because of it. I do wish that some things could have been easier and I do wish that, and I do hope that I'm doing enough to help my children have a better space in the future. But I'm also aware that, you know, there's some stuff I'm just going to have to figure out and no one's going to be able to do it for me. I have to do it for myself. That's beautiful. We have like one minute left and I could keep talking to you forever. All right, Rachel. Are you ready for our rapid fire? This is just a couple of seconds. I know these are going to be big questions. Then I'm going to ask you to rapid fire answer. This is our attempt at our inside the actor studio end of interview kind of thing here. So let's talk about who's at your kitchen table. So we talked about this with, I think Michelle Obama brought this up. Who do you laugh, cry, share, process? Who's at that table for you? My partner, my husband, and my kids, and some of my best friends who have known me since I was like teeny tiny. So yeah, all of them, Colleen and Christine and, oh gosh, yeah, my sister, Sarah. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. So friends, family, some coworkers in there as well. I love that. So part of this process is getting proximate to difference. What's one identity or perspective that you feel like you would like to get more proximate with or gain some more understanding? I always want to understand more about experiences within the LGBT community. My best friend is she identifies as bisexual and her partner is trans and has been with her for nearly 16 years as well. And we always have really good conversations, but I always feel like there's more I can do. And so that's a community that I wish to get more proximate to and be closer to. Beautiful. Well, hey, Rachel, you're in luck because it is Pride Month and we've got lots of really great programming at Cisco and everywhere else. And then, you know, you and I can always get proximate to and talk about those things, but our trans friends definitely need us right now and need us to, for all of us to increase our learning because there's a lot going on. So yes, excited for that. You'll have lots of opportunities. Tell me what hope means for you. What does hope mean when we talk about it? Hope is the thing that beats everything, right? That in the end, there is always hope and it lights a path, you know, whether or not things can be seen, right? And for me, it's never ending. It's the thing that beats yeah. despair and therefore it'll always be there. Yes. Les, I love that. And let me just ask you any last thing that you've been such a generous guest. I appreciate our conversation. I appreciate your vulnerability, your willingness to talk about your own journey. Is there anything that you would leave our guests or one thing you would leave our audiences with today? I would say that 
in the end, on the topic of belonging, as we mentioned, that it can be a choice. It can be your choice to decide if you want to belong. Like it really should be your choice to decide, do I want to belong here? And in a space where the rocket fuel that I sit on top of is this idea that, yes, I don't fit anywhere naturally. I don't look like I fit anywhere. I don't fit anywhere, but that means I can belong anywhere I want. And wherever I choose to drop my anchor is where I'm going to be. And people just have to deal with it. And that's empowering. That's It's a superpower in a very, very sort of secretive way. And I let that drive me through everything. Well, Rachel, here I'm just Cisco. Let me just say you belong at my table anytime, any day. I feel privileged to have you in my orbit. And I'm so glad that other people at Cisco are getting to know you a little bit more as well. So I'll just thank you again so much for your time today. Good luck with those Lego. Good luck with the, you know, your Lego building crew that you have as well. I might have them come over. I've got a couple of sets that I need to get through and happy Pride Month. Happy. We just passed API Heritage Month as well, which we know we celebrate both those things all year round. But this is your reminder, y'all, if you have not gone out and gotten proximate to communities, Pride Month, Celebration Months, those kinds of things. Part of the reason that those are so important is not because we stop our learning or we just celebrate one month at a time, is that it's a reminder for us to get intentionally proximate to those communities we might not know about as much. And so take opportunities for that. I know we've got some great content from AIPI Heritage Month that our CAN community has just put out. So check that out. It's all recorded. And then be sure to connect into some of the pride conversations that are happening. And then as we go through the year, make sure you're taking advantage of our inclusive communities and all those great conversations. So Rachel, thank you again. And let's go out on hope. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to the Let's Get Proximate podcast powered by Cisco. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Cisco, an industry leader in technology innovations and solutions. With networking, security, collaboration, cloud management, and more, Cisco helps to securely connect industries and communities, creating the bridge to possible. Find out more at www.cisco.com.